In my left hand is a Bible. In my right hand, the owner's manual for my dehumidifier. Let's do a show about the Bible. Hello, friends, and welcome to Book. I'm Josh Way. And yes, we are going to talk about the Bible. The Bible is perhaps the most famous book of all time, much more popular than Sniglets, and certainly the most quoted book ever by people who didn't read it. And of course, the Bible isn't really a single book. It's actually a library of books which span many generations, languages, and traditions. The one I'm holding is a Hebrew Bible, but there are many versions, translations, and editions. Some have pictures. Now, online discourse concerning the Bible tends to come in one of two zesty flavors. On the one hand, outraged moralizing from people who insist it is the infallible word of God and that everyone should conform to its teaching. And on the other hand, outraged moralizing from skeptics and non-believers who find the whole thing creepy and themselves insist that the Bible is full of regressive morality, myths, and inconsistencies. Sure, that's painting with a rather broad brush, but I think that's at least a reasonable caricature of the present situation. Contemporary discussions about the Bible tend to take place in the context of an overblown culture war, wherein the Bible is either the authoritative foundation for moral living or an impediment to learning and progress. Here's how this plays out in America, my neighborhood. The first group, uh, religious types mostly, is usually cranky about something, typically the private behavior of others within the culture, and the Bible for them is a self-authorizing debate killer and moral cudgel with which to smack sinners back into place. Then the second group, the skeptics and non-believers, reject the critique of the first group and thereby reject what is, as far as they know, the Bible itself. Out of context, Bible quotes are volleyed from both sides, everybody's grouchy, comment threads are closed, and nobody learns anything. In the shuffle, the actual content of the Bible in its full context is completely ignored. This is where we come in. I find myself in the middle of this silly conflict. I was raised in the church, I am a member and teacher in my church, and I'm a seminary student. But I'm also something of a geek and a comedy writer and a comics fan, so I have a lot of friends on both sides, believers, non-believers, Christians, atheists, everything in between, And I see people that I'm very fond of on both sides of this fake war saying stupid things and missing points entirely. That's the premise of this show. What if our assumptions about the Bible are wrong? What if we're wasting our time arguing about things that the people who wrote these old books couldn't care less about? What if we took a breath, slowed down, and just read the books with fresh eyes and open minds? I'm not an apologist. I'm not a proselytizer. I'm not interested in defending or justifying the Bible in a modern context. I'm much more interested in putting contemporary concerns aside, as much as that's possible, and simply trying to appreciate the historic circumstances which provoked the authors to write this thing that we call the Bible. This show is primarily about history and literature. Now, is the Bible a religious book? Of course. But religion doesn't, or at least shouldn't, exist in a vacuum or for its own sake. Religion is the human response to extraordinary life experience. And before we can debate religion or morality, we should take the time to appreciate the historical reality that uh, gave birth to it. That's one of my contentions, that the people who wrote this stuff down didn't write it to give bland religious instruction to people thousands of years in the future. They wrote it as a response to an immediate, urgent experience, a problem or a danger, uh, or, or as a screed against political treachery or a comfort to the oppressed. 
Whether you believe devoutly in the Bible or think it's a load of hogwash, I really don't want to change your mind. I just want all of us to come away with the best information possible so our discussions will be well-grounded and more productive. You will also learn lots of cool names like Oholi Bama and Belteshazzar. And that's this show in a nutshell. Now, I know if I do this right, my religious friends will probably call me a sellout and my skeptic friends will always be suspicious of me. Fair enough, I get it. But if you've ever wished for a smart, laid-back, intellectually honest look at the content of the Bible without the preaching or the deconstruction, this is for you. Above all, I really, really want to have fun. Seriously, this book is wonderful and crazy and it deserves to be read in the right way if it's going to be read at all. Now today, I'm just going to give you a quick example of how I approach the Bible, and then the next time we'll dive right in with Genesis and creation and all that stuff. Sound good? Let's do it. Okay, first thing I want to accomplish today is to explain to you my method for reading the Bible. Now right away, that makes some people uncomfortable. If the Bible is a universal, foundational text, why does it have to be deciphered? Shouldn't it be crystal clear what every word of it means at face value? That is an understandable assumption, but it is simply unrealistic. It's also, by the way, where most of this culture war tension comes from. Now, the question is not whether or not the Bible should be interpreted. It's how it will be. You can start with your own personal ideology, dogmatic fervor on the one hand or naturalist suspicion on the other, and then work backwards to the text. But then you will inevitably bend the text to your will and not learn anything from it. Or you can set your own assumptions aside just for a moment and let the text speak for itself. Why and how would we do that? These texts were written on stone tablets and scrolls over many thousands of years in languages that have transformed and disappeared in the intervening millennia. If we want to begin to understand them, we have an enormous cultural gap to traverse. Point number one, we have to learn how to read any ancient text, not just the ones that made it into the Bible. My method for reading ancient texts like the Bible is a twofold combination of history and literature. Think of it like this. In one hand, you've got a red-tinted looking glass. This is the lens of history. If we look through it, we can see the reality of a distant time and place. We can see the circumstances swirling around the people who lived then and how they might have felt in that moment. In the other hand, you've got a blue-tinted looking glass. This lens is literature. Looking through it, we can see the strange genres, formats, and idioms of people who wrote in far ancient places. Only a tiny fraction of the population of the ancient Near East could read or write, and writing was an act of urgency and persuasion, not leisure. Many of the styles and genres of this world and this time are completely foreign to us, and we have to consider this or we will make mincemeat of the text. Now, imagine a big old pair of 3D glasses forged out of these two lenses, together history and literature, giving us a multi-dimensional view of the text and a sense of when, why, and how it was written. The point is to get us closer to the author's ideology than our own. Otherwise, whether we're a religious reader or not, we're just making the text dance to our whims. Sounds highfalutin, but how does it work, right? Well, let's try it out. For this example, I've intentionally chosen a relatively obscure and problematic passage from the Bible. This will help us to try our method on for size without distracting us with hot-button issues or some well-known Bible story. 
So here we go. This is from the book of Judges from chapter 3. And please note here at the beginning, chapter breaks and verses are not part of the original text as written. They're just there to help us get around the Bible with our sanity intact. Unfortunately, they also encourage cherry-picking of texts and out-of-context interpretation, but they are pretty dang helpful. All right, Judges chapter 3, verses 15 to 25. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gera the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bounded on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon the king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into the king's belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber and they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. There. Just let that Bible story wash over you. This shockingly scatological episode presents a problem for the culture war crowd. If the Bible is a simple moral instruction book, and every story, poem, and song exists to impart some life lesson, what are we to do with a tale like this? I suppose we could force some clumsy moral onto the story. Don't get fat. Uh, God will help you kill fat kings. I don't know. Meanwhile, critics of the Bible see a dark and ugly story about a deceitful assassin who murders a defenseless invalid in the name of God. Is this the kind of hero the Bible's offering us? Neither approach will do the text justice. But suppose we were to employ our twin tools of history and literature to help us understand what's really going on. Time to put on those Bible glasses, kids. In English, we call this the book of Judges, but the Hebrew word shofatim could be more appropriately translated chieftains or even warlords. It's about a very chaotic and violent time in the early life of an ancient nation called Israel. One of the unique features of this country was that it didn't have a king, at least not at this very early stage in its development. Just about every nation, state, and people group in the ancient world had a supreme ruler of some kind, but instead of a king, Israel was ruled by a family of priests who insisted that Israel's God was supposed to be its king, and that appointing a human ruler was to doubt that God's authority. This opinion was strong among the old guard conservatives in Israel. But also within Israel was a large group of young radicals led by the tribe of Judah, the biggest of 12 family groups which made up the nation. These men and women believed that Israel needed a king and an army to protect it against the city-states which surrounded it. These radicals compiled the scroll of Shofatim as an argument that Israel needed a king ASAP. 
The book is brash and provocative and clearly intended to make the old guard traditionalists uncomfortable and embarrassed. After a brief introduction detailing Judah's many victories against Israel's enemies, a good indication that they are in fact the authors, the bulk of the book is a collection of crazy stories which highlight the turmoil and chaos of the nation's life without a king. In every story, an enemy threatens Israel and an unlikely and unsavory hero rises up to defeat it. In this story, the enemy is the king of Moab, one of Israel's worst enemies since even before they became a nation. And the hero is a left-handed guy named Ehud. Left-handedness was considered a disadvantage in the ancient Near East, and each of the so-called judges in the book is at some disadvantage. In another episode, it's a woman named Yael who kills the bad guy with a spike through the head. Then there's the sad and sordid tale of Samson, a big dumb guy who defeats Israel's enemies but destroys himself in the process. Each story is more bloody and explicit than the last, and the not-so-subtle message is clear in a line repeated four times throughout the book. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If Israel had a king, says Judah, none of this ugly stuff would have happened to us in the first place. And that's the book of Judges in a nutshell. A polemic from an ancient culture war. A war, by the way, which the young radicals eventually won, as detailed in the next few books. Now, how successful the whole king initiative was for Israel is a topic for another time. Now, if you're thinking, this sounds more like politics than religion, then you're getting the idea. Remember, in the ancient world, there was no division between what we call religion and what we call politics, as there is today. Issues of everyday life, how will we eat, how will we live, who will rule over us, were every bit as religious as they were political. This is a huge key to unlocking the meaning behind biblical texts. Again, this is just a taste of how we're going to be looking together at the Bible. And it will get much more interesting, I promise. We will inevitably hit on some hot-button issues, but remember, we're first and foremost interested in how the text would have fallen on ancient ears than on our own. Next week, we'll look at Genesis chapter 1, and wherever you land on that one, I'm fairly confident that I will surprise you. I'm Josh Way, and this has been Book. If you enjoyed this remotely, I urge you to share, blog, like, and tweet this webcast to your online friends and family. If you have any questions or constructive feedback, email me at book at joshway.com. Read the book blog and find more content at book.joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and we'll answer it on the podcast. That's 801-760-3013. And that's it for me, pals. I'll see you next time.